Oh, it's such an honour, Danny. Um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here, and it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work, and you've given it a lot of thought, and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. <laughs> Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to an interviewer who has actually read the books she's asking questions about <laughs> and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it, and I think that's really special. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat. Great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoy listening to the podcast. That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe and we need more word nerds like yourself, people that are passionate about books. Welcome and thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. On this podcast, I chat with authors about their books, the writing process, the power of literature, and what it is to be human in this messy world. Today, I welcome Sasha Molitoris, whose professional goal is to find answers to the question of how, in a digital age, we can shape a more ethical landscape. Sasha's expertise and qualifications span ethics, media and law. Today we explore his book Net Privacy and how we can strike the balance between freedom and unwarranted intrusions on our privacy. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast, Sasha. What a pleasure to chat to you about your book Net Privacy. Thank you. I have so many questions and discussion points that we can't possibly cover the breadth of this book in this interview because I think it's so important and it resonates so much, this topic. It does, yeah. Look, it's actually a hard one to talk about. I found this all the way through. So I started researching privacy back in 2013. I had been a journalist, <clears throat> excuse me, previously at the Sydney Morning Herald and went off to do a PhD. And privacy, privacy became my topic, it's a privacy, and it just opened up. So now, seven years later, that's turned into this book. And it really is, even now for me, very hard to talk about in a way because it's so big. Mm, it is so big. And that's where I guess I was thinking, how do I narrow it down so we have this in-depth conversation and we cover some really important things. Now, you've been researching this, like you said, 2013 for a PhD. What sparked this idea for you? So a number of things, it was just, you know, the way these things happen, it was kind of life mixed with interests. So I had been a journalist at Sydney Morning Herald for nearly 20 years. And in 2012, there was a massive round of voluntary redundancies. And, and you know, people like David Ma left the paper and John Huxley and Doug Anderson, all these people that, that I'd looked up to all my career and who I'd learned to write from. And by that stage, I, um, I had started teaching uh, some media courses at UNSW in particular, and and also at NYU Sydney. And so I thought, okay, I'm actually going to take a left-hand turn into academia and I'll embark on a PhD. And my first thought was I will look into the ethics of new media. You know, clearly there's a lot to, to think about there. And then privacy became my first substantive topic. And so that became it, really, the ethics of privacy on the internet and that then expanded into the law as well because I did a law degree before becoming a journalist so basically I started devoting, my, devoting myself to looking into the ethics and the law of digital privacy. Wow and what is the greatest issue in regard to the net and privacy? Is it social media? Is it the information we share? Data collection? Surveillance? What's our biggest concern or worry? 
Oh, I don't know. I, I really don't. I don't think there is. I don't think there is one. You know, it's it's just it really is a very big issue that um, t- touches so many aspects of our lives now. Uh, so it, it's kind of kind of difficult to know where to begin. I guess today I was watching something uh, with the historian Yuval Noah Harari. You know, he's written some really big best-selling books. Um, and he talks about surveillance as well. He kind of comes at it from another angle, but he's talking about the way that algorithms uh, are increasingly determining what we see and also then determining, determining what we do. We're getting manipulated by algorithms in a lot of ways. So, you know, your Facebook newsfeed I'm talking about or, mm-hmm. or Spotify or whatever it is, Netflix, you know, the stuff that is recommended to you on Netflix. Now, all that stuff is powered by what what you've done before, mixed with other personal data and other data about people like you. So increasingly, we're living these lives where the stuff about us that is known and about other people out there in the world that is known is then being used to give us what we consume, you know, the internet that we know, um, the music that we we hear and the, the TV shows that we watch, um, but it can also then be used in nefarious ways, you know, so all that data and information was used to target people individually, um, trying to push very emotive buttons to get them either to stay away from voting in the US or to vote for, for a particular candidate. Um, so I, I, I don't think there's one particular thing to watch out for. But I guess in Australia, my bottom line is we really need to rethink first what sort of legal protections we have. Mm, those algorithms, though, they absolutely blow my mind. And and one section in the book, you know, I'm sure mm. we're all, we all under, understand that allocations can be tracked. You know, our technology knows where we are or social media or our phone. But what really blew my mind was that not only do they know where you are now, they could gauge where you are going to be in 24 hours. Right, exactly. So this is the power of, of data. Yeah, there's a real potential for abuse and manipulation on the part of of companies in particular, but even governments as well, if they know things about you that you don't know yourself. And so the thing that you mentioned, that predictive aspect to to data is is really interesting. You know, that study that you mentioned, Twitter location data is really good at revealing where you're highly likely to be in 24 hours. So those sorts of those sorts of, this type of research keeps reaffirming just the power of data and big data. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, many of us are staying home at the moment, so not too hard to track where we'll be in 24 hours. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's very fascinating. Right. <laughs> and as well, I think at I'm just... At the fridge, that's yeah, well. That's it, at the fridge, at my desk, at the fridge. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> and there are so many things that just, you know, really fascinated me. And I guess that's what I'm bringing up in the interview because I thought they probably fascinate other people too. And something, you know, which I think you just touched on that it's not always about what you share on Facebook or on Twitter, because I'm sure we're all only sharing parts of ourselves, but it's also what can, can be inferred. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's that, that idea of, of inference. Yeah. So um, it works in a number of ways. But what, what happens online is that, and this, is, this gets to a really, really profound point that I, I still find quite hard to explain, but it's the idea of of privacy as not just being individual. So my privacy is not just about me. 
rather it's something that's collective and networked, right? So this is something that is made apparent, most apparent, I think, through something like social media. So I, I think the easiest example that I can give of that is you think of a group of five friends, you know, you and your, your four close, closest friends, and four of you are on social media, but one is not, you know, has some sort of objection to social media or for whatever reason. But still that fifth person will appear, you know, in the background of photos or in conversations or in some way that person will have a presence. And even if, and this is really unlikely, but even if that fifth person isn't clearly there, like, you know, makes sure not to be in the background of photos or so on, a lot can be inferred about that person just because that person is your friend. And there's this phenomenon of homophily, which is basically that similar people hang out together. So a lot can be inferred about people just by who they hang out with. And this is the power of, of big networks. So when a company like Google or Facebook gets as big as they are, that's when they become really powerful because they know so much they can, they can even join the dots to work out stuff about people who don't really use Google or Facebook. Um, and, and this is the power of inference. So there is now so much data out there so much joining of the dots that this, even what you don't share um, can sometimes be known. And it gets back, to, gets back to that point about, about yeah, you might, these companies that have a lot of data or governments, governments that have a lot of data might be able to work out that a young woman or a woman is pregnant before that woman even knows she's pregnant just by aspects of what has been shared online. It's exactly with the shadow profiles, isn't it? Some people might think that being part of social media keeps them anonymous or keeps them private. But as you said, there's that inference and those shadow profiles. Do you want to take us through that? That was fascinating too. Yeah. So this is something that's, I guess, a bit of an open secret because it's been talked about quite a lot. So in the wake of Cambridge Analytica, when that whole story broke in 2018, you might remember that Mark Zuckerberg had 10 hours of, of testimony mm -hmm. um, before Congress in the US. US. And um, parts of his testimony that were really interesting, and it, that included some questioning about shadow profiles, but it didn't really get the coverage that I thought it deserved. So the idea of shadow profiles um, is essentially that a company, a social media company, other companies, Facebook, they can have fairly detailed profiles of people who don't use that service. So that's basically it. Uh, and what I just explained a minute ago is, is the basic idea. So you have five friends, you have four of them on a social media network and one who isn't. That one who isn't can still have a, a profile with that social media network because he, he or she might be in the background of photos or be talked about or things can be inferred about that person. So shadow profiles are something that researchers have shown definitively can exist. They're theoretically quite easy to build. Facebook denies it has shadow profiles. It doesn't like that terminology and it's always <laughs> denied it. But Zuckerberg and Facebook have it. That they have admitted that they do collect some data on non-Facebook user, users in order to keep users of Facebook safe. Mm. So there is some sort of acknowledgement, but certainly there is no acknowledgement of that terminology, they don't like that. To me, like a whole big part of my project was about consent, you know, and sort of bringing it back to basic principles of, okay, let's 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 think about what are we okay with sharing, 
right? And and if you bring it back to consent, you know, the sort of simple idea of are you okay with this? Well, you know, if if I don't use like if I don't use Facebook and yet Facebook has a profile of me, there's a complete failure of consent, right? That that is an, an absolute fundamental ethical failure uh, in my eyes. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's changed the way people behave. I mean, in your book, you say the internet's original intent was to promote connection, openness and connectivity, which sounds lovely. And, you know, especially when we're in these times of lockdown, you can still get to connect with people. So that's a really positive aspect of it. I'm far from an alarmist. You know, I've written a book about privacy and I've thought about it for a number of years, but you know, privacy isn't, doesn't trump everything else. You know, it's not, um, we don't have to bow down in front of privacy, you know, in, in front of all other values and things that we consider important, especially now during this, this, the lockdown that we've had and during the coronavirus and the way that we've relied on the connective technology that we have, you know, be that social media or Zoom, Zoom or Microsoft Teams or Skype as we're using now, you know, these platforms are really important and have really powerful positive potential. Um, to me, it's just really important that we have a good public open discussion about, okay, is privacy important? Do we value it? If so, what sort of protections do we need to have in place to make sure it's protected in a reasonable way? You know, so 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 to me, that really came to the fore with the whole COVID Safe app, that um, which all happened subsequent to the writing of the book, but then was great because it led me to think through all these issues again. Yeah, and it's absolutely important. And what you say about consent is absolutely true because all that inference stuff and if you try and stay off social media, you know, where's that consent coming from? But as you say as well, data collection isn't all bad. It has the potential to improve life, ease traffic, solve crimes, advance medical research. But I guess there's that line between, you know, the the Orwellian society... (laughs) And drawing the line between our privacy. Yeah, that, that's right. It's, it's getting the balance right, and that's not hard. But I think what's happened over the last, let's say, 10 years, you know, since only it turned 15 last year, you know, Facebook's still really young. Mm. Google's just been more than 20 years old. Twitter's somewhere in the middle. So, you know, they're really young. And think about how they've changed over those years, you know. So this is all pretty new. new. Um, and what's happened over the past, decade certainly I think is that the pendulum has been too far to one side where companies have been collecting data um, and amassing data sharing data selling data and and that's at our expense you know that's very much at the expense of us as individuals but also collectively as as a society so things like the voting process and democracy can get compromised but I just think it doesn't make for a flourishing of society basically what's happening is People are being reduced to data. Their data is being exploited in many, many ways. Uh, and, and that is causing a problem both for individuals and for society. And the, the, the payoff, I guess the upside, if there is one, is that uh, a lot of companies are profiting. And also there is a degree of connectivity that we do get, you know, which certainly has helped us during this time. It's complicated. It It really is is complicated. And it's new, you know, like you say, it's new. And you also say in the book that this pace of change is so fast that it's so dislocating to us. And so it's almost impossible to keep up. It is. Everything is changing quite quickly. You know, Google and Twitter and Facebook are not what they were even 10 years ago. Everything is in, in a state of flux. But I actually think the ethical principles that we want to apply haven't really changed. 
what we, my argument is, what we want to do is treat each other as human beings, right? We want to treat each other as persons, as reasoning, feeling, sentient beings, right? That's what we want to do. And we want to avoid the opposite of treating each other as things, of, of reducing each other to data and um, doing things behind each other's backs, like, you know, breaking each other down to data and buying and selling that data for personal gain. Um, so um, my argument is the ethics actually haven't changed and the ethical principles we want to apply don't really need to change. All that's changing is the media environment. But once we kind of think, okay, here's some sound ethical approaches that we can take, then it kind of it clears the way. You mentioned, you know, Facebook's only 15 years old, the internet's 50, the web turned 30. So, you know, very sort of new things really in terms of the length of yeah. humanity. And I'm interested because now, I mean, I think we're of a similar vintage where we didn't grow up with phones. So we've had this half of a life without phones and half of a life with all this technology. So that's an interesting space. But then the next generation, yeah. they're just, you know, all technology. And I find that we're continuously connected. And you say in your book, we order apples, we find lovers, we pay bills, and with a few swipes and taps, we can do all of this stuff. But the idea between the individual and the device is beginning to disappear. Is this a terrifying idea or is this just part of an unavoidable present and future? Yeah, good question. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I think it's a bit of both, actually. I think we haven't struck yeah, the right balance. Even myself, I'm guilty of it. And I have to say to myself, put your phone down and be present in the world. And I feel absolutely. like we haven't struck that balance yet. And I'm trying very hard. But honestly, I believe all the research when they say that your devices are addictive because they are. Yeah, Look, I, I think you're right. I, th I, I think it's a balance of both. I think it's really hard to get it right. I think um, uh, that these companies are employing some of the brightest minds on the planet in order to get you to engage more with that social media network or that, you know, something like TikTok or, you know, it's so well designed and it's so effortless to use. You can get lost for hours with your smartphone, you know, just going from... Twitter to TikTok to Facebook to the City Morning Herald website to however you use it, you know, whatever um, whatever apps you use, but it is very sticky, you know. So um, uh, there are a number of things going on, but one thing is don't feel too guilty as an individual if you find it hard to get <laughs> off your phone because some very clever people have, um, have made it very easy for you to use that thing and they yeah. want you to keep using it so because yeah, it's even no... it's even your camera you know like I went on a, a nature walk today where I you know deliberately put my phone away but then I was like oh this view is really nice and out comes your phone again yeah yeah <laughs> that's exactly right and and to me like the kind of so if you have your phone and you're even if you're engaging with other people on social media but there's someone sitting opposite you because you're in a cafe, engage with the person in front of you and put the phone down because you can always respond on social media later, you know. So the device is really attractive and, and sticky, you know. But, I like um, that word, sticky. I think you're right. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It, it really is. I feel that too. But um, that's what we've kind of – I think we're in a process of kind of working this out. Mm. That what, we're, the, we're the guinea you know, pigs, I think. 
We are. Yeah, we are. And I actually feel, you know, I feel for, I teach some students who are 20, 21, and they've just grown up in this generation where they've had all this stuff all their lives. Mm. And, and, you know, for you and I, we can, we can contrast a time kind of before and a, a time now. Uh, for them, I think it, it's, it's very hard. But even for them, I think, you know, uh, I get a lot of them who say, I'm not sure about the positives. And I think maybe the negatives outweigh the positives of how much I use my smartphone mm. and, uh, and so on. So it's, yeah, we're the guinea pigs. Mm, absolutely. So, so happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I just need you to quickly talk me through these hypothetical societies because I found the idea of Panopticon 3.0 um, about these, <laughs> these worlds or societies. And, you know, we talk about this one with no doors on toilets, no walls in homes, yeah. no control over sensitive information, no restriction upon access to oneself like Truman Burbank. And this kind of started giving me like, you know, a lot of anxiety thinking about living in a world like this because that's, yeah. that's talking about zero privacy, isn't it? Talk, about, talk exactly, to me yeah. about this. I found this fascinating. Well, it's just what philosophers often do is they engage in thought experiments. So it's basically asking what if. So in that part of the book, I'm just asking, okay, what would a world with no privacy at all look like? And by contrast, what would a world with complete privacy look like? And I, I did it quite quickly. You know, I didn't sort of linger on that too long because you could probably spend your whole chapters thinking about each of those. Um, but neither of those is possible, I don't think. Mm. Um, neither of those is currently poss possible anyway. We, we have to necessarily have some privacy um, and we can't have no privacy. Um, you know, we have to, yeah, my thoughts are still my own to some extent, right? And I'm not constantly connected. The internet or any of the devices I use, as good as they are, maybe even knowing where I'm going to be in 24 hours, you know, they can't read my thoughts. I still have autonomy and and the ability to make decisions. Um, but those two worlds, as impossible as they are, are both dystopian, right? Mm -hmm. So a world of no privacy and a world of absolute privacy, uh, and they're, they're things to avoid. So to me, that's just something to think through as a thought experiment to suggest that kind of initial position of, okay, it seems like privacy is something that we need in some sort of moderated what you know, some some medium degree of privacy. Now we need to work out exactly what that means. How much privacy do we need? Mm. No, I just found that really, really interesting, and I just wanted to mention it. Now, how have you changed the way you use social media after or throughout writing this book? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question. I'm not much on social media. Um, I've got a Twitter presence. Um, I had a Facebook account that I, and I still do, I think, um, that I had to set up for work many years ago and I tried to log on a while ago and Facebook was so suspicious because I hadn't logged on for so long <laughs> that I needed to send, um, I, I needed to get security codes from three of my Facebook contacts oh, and wow. I, I couldn't, it was really like I thought this is level. too hard, can't be bothered. And I, I couldn't quite be bothered, no. <laughs> um, how's it changed the way I use things? Look, I'm yeah, I'm cautious, I guess, you know, I just, I try not to share too much. And, you know, something I said earlier was something that I don't think I'll be able to explain in a lot of detail now, and I still find it hard to explain properly, but this idea of privacy is being about more than just me. So part of the reason I don't go online too much and, and reveal too much about myself is because 
I don't want to reveal everyone else, you know, and I don't want to compromise kind of, I don't want to set that pattern. Um, I know that if I reveal a lot about myself, I'm also revealing all my family members as well in one way or another. So yeah, I'm, I'm reasonably careful, but you know, that, that said, I still, you know, communicate digitally via, you know, various networks. I have Twitter as, as, as I say, and a few other ways of staying in touch with friends. So it's a bit of a balancing act. Mm. It's, you know, there is no, <laughs> I don't think there's an, there's an easy answer. I try to be a bit judicious and also, you know, my work is in part, does, well, a large part of the motivation is to try to help to bring about good law reform um, to get the government to give us some decent privacy protections because we don't have them at the moment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's what net privacy did for me. It just brought up all these questions that I, I guess I, that were circulating throughout my brain, you know, as I'm using social media, but they really sort of opened up that thinking and the breadth of the work. It was just incredible. And it just Thank made you. me think, it made me question how I use the internet. And it just made me think about what our future holds in regard to our dependence on the net and what this means for us as individuals as humans and for our privacy so you know thank you for writing it it blew my mind so it brought up lots of interesting discussions in our household too so thank you for writing thank it and bringing it into my world thank you that's really kind of you to say that's um very high praise thank you and you know i think the upside is that i think we're at this turning point at the moment where through a number of reasons uh, it is on the agenda. You know, there is um, in Europe, they've passed really powerful privacy protections in the form of the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, in Australia, there, there have been a whole lot of really good law reform recommendations, specifically by the ACCC recently, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Um, and a lot of those are modelled on what's happened in Europe. And the government is taking these very seriously. So there's an awareness that that things have not been going well, you know, that privacy is underprotected and that there's been this kind of period of use and abuse mm -hmm. of people's data, I think. So something needs to change. So hopefully that's that's going to start to happen and and in the next, you know, year or two there'll, there'll be some, some good movement here and, and things will start to shift. So this is a bit of a moment. And even the companies like Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Google, they've all come out now and they've, you know, they've acknowledged that, okay, something needs to change with regards to privacy, but also other issues like, you know, misinformation. And I think all, a whole lot of these big issues are actually interrelated. You know, but I'm taking us off on a on no. Another, that's fine. Opening another can of worms. No, so we'll just go for another 45 yeah. minutes about that. That's fine. That's right. <laughs> no, and you know, it's no small feat, especially with these massive companies who are worth you know billions of dollars. It's no small feat in getting them to listen, is it? No, that's right. That's right. So that that's what's happening at the moment. Um, and Australia, I've got to say, Australia is doing really well. There's some really good work being done in Australia in terms of law reform in terms of getting that balance right between um, people and and people connecting with each other and business as well and business and innovation but also um, uh, protecting protecting privacy and putting some sort of limits on the way data is used 
thank you again, Sasha. Thank you for the book and thank you for your time today. I've just, um, I'm going to be thinking about this all night again now because <laughs> it's just something that really resonated with me and fascinated me. I mean, you know, with this podcast, I use social media quite a bit and I'm always trying to be, you know, judicious in my posts and keep it about the podcast. But, you know, you've got to reveal a little bit about yourself. Otherwise, you're just a you bot, aren't you? <laughs> You do. Look, and this is, as, as I mentioned, I, I was a journalist for a long time. And, and part of writing in a way that's engaging is to reveal something of yourself. You know, mm-hmm. this is exactly what you've just mentioned about doing a podcast. You know, you, you're, not, you're not a robot. You're a human being. You're telling people stories. And part of that is how do you relate to this story and how, why do you care about this story? So we need to share of ourselves the tricky thing is working out how we can do that in a digital age. So yeah, absolutely. We'll work that out. We will. We'll be the guinea pigs and we'll uh, take, take one for the team for everyone else. That's it. <laughs> well, thank you That's again it. so much for your time, Sasha. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. And honestly, it does not feel like 40 minutes. It feels like about three minutes I've been talking to you. Oh, good. <laughs> Thanks for the interest. Like, it's really great to have a conversation like this. So thank you. Oh, I love the books from New South. That's great. Yeah, they are good. I've got to say. And Pip McGuinness was the publisher for this one who's just left after an illustrious career there. 